Hey there, this is the Fixed Plasma Podcast. This is the first of two seasonal episodes of two books that are actually quite similar. The first one is John Maceville's Box of Delights. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Fixed Plasma. This is our pre-Christmas episode where we're going to talk about a childhood favourite of ours, The Box of Delights by John Maysfield. Now, we're going to talk about the book, but also the BBC Children's television series is worthy of note because it's a very faithful adaptation with, um, with lines taken directly from the book. It stars Patrick Troughton and it was... It was first broadcast in 1984 is that right Liz? Yeah 84. About right yeah. Anyway Liz you're going to do the synopsis and then I'll do the themes bit. Okay. Or kick it off. Okay so uh, the hero of the Box of Delights is Kay Harker who we think is around the age of 12 although I don't think his age is given and he's coming home from boarding school for the Christmas holiday. Not long after he arrives at home he is entrusted with the eponymous box to keep it safe because there are dark powers at work searching for it and these powers led by the villain Abner Brown are searching for the man who has held the box thus far who's called Cole Hawlings so Cole gives the box to Kay because he thinks Kay will escape notice and to some extent that proves to be true along the way trying to find the box Abner Brown performs all kinds of evil deeds, most notably scrobbling, which is a term I haven't encountered anywhere other than the Box of Delights. It means kidnapped. It's an excellent word and should be used more widely. Uh, Abner Brown scrobbles a whole load of the clergy of the area, including the bishop. He scrobbles Kay's guardian, uh, a couple of friends of Kay's who are staying with Kay for the Christmas holiday. Um, lots of choir boys and who knows who else lots of many many people are scrobbled over the course of this book <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of his notable features right the yeah. um, in amongst the scrobbling there's a certain amount of magic um, and there are also talking animals and appearances from uh, Hearn the Hunter um, Cole Hawlings himself turns out to be the real life um Medi- oh, what do we call him? Medieval, medieval mystic. Medieval um, philosopher, Philosopher, I think. yes. Um, Raymond Lull, who we've actually just been reading about on Wikipedia in preparation for this episode. Yeah, anglicised, it's uh, Raymond Lully, I think, is the... Yes. And is, is how he certainly referred to in the series, and I yes. assume in the, assume yes, in the, the book as well. Also, I think. Um, and Kay uses the box in order to foil Abner's plots. Uh, the box enables him to become small or to travel swiftly and it, on opening it it also enables him to travel into into the past and also into some less concrete sort of worlds such as the the forest where he encounters Herman Hunter and there are various other magical beings and, and magical happenings going on and the whole thing culminates with a quite dramatic scene in uh, what is allegedly a theological college which Abner Brown is using as his base uh, with um, many members of the clergy and choir boys and other sundry scrobbled people uh, locked in basements, basement dungeons and the sluice gates being opened so the whole place floods from the ground up while exploding from the top down I think. Uh, yeah. And obviously, 
Kay and Cole Hawlings and a few other um, people are involved in rescuing them and the police finally belatedly realising that there's something quite serious going on, come in and arrest all the wrongdoers and all is well. Um, I think the least said about the very, very end of both book and TV show, the better. But sadly, um, it actually ends with an and it was all a dream. But I'm choosing to ignore that. Yeah, it's totally unnecessary, I think. Not least because The Midnight Folk, which is the book which precedes it, is also magical and does not end with and it was all a dream. So I think... I think there's no call for it whatsoever here, even if there ever was in any book, which I don't really think there is. No. So that's sort of a brief outline of what happens. Uh, but along the way, there's a lot of Christmassy stuff. Uh, well, I think I'll come back and talk about this later. But uh, even though people are being scrobbled left, right and centre, and there's clearly an evil plot, and Kay is looking after this magical device of, of great power... In between times, they uh, build snowmen, they have a Punch and Judy show, they go to the children's Christmas party in the um, Bishop's Palace. There's lots of fairly standard upper middle class kids Christmas stuff of the era going on in between the plot and the magic. And the, the era is the 1930s. Yes. And this was published in 1935, notably. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Thank you for looking that up. That was 1928 was the Midnight Folk and the 1935 was the Box of Delights. So it's actually contemporary. I hadn't quite... Yeah, yeah, that's right. ...clocked that. That's interesting. And I, I think the um, the historical Christmas stuff is actually part of its charm, a big part of its charm. Obviously, we're fans of fantasy and magic and, and such things when they occur, but the a lot of the fun is seeing all of this stuff about how Kay lives his Christmas in between the other bits. So I think that, that will do as a reasonable summary. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'll tell you, one of the things that... I, um, so one of the things you didn't mention was Kay using period slang. Is, <laughs> yes, I haven't to toss it to my kick. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it means he doesn't have any money, but I think it's... it. Anyway... And his guardian, Caroline Louisa, tells him off for using the slag. And Peter says something about, isn't that the purple pin? It's the purple pin, yes, which... Which means something awful. Yeah, it means something awful. And I think if you Google the purple pin, it only appears in the box of delights. (laughs) It's a... I suspect it's a made-up thing. Yes, almost certainly. I'm sure I've tossed it to my kick. You also know that. Well, I don't know. Scrobbled. Well, scrobbled sounds like it. Um... I happen to toss her to my kick, but there must be a um, a real world route to that. Really? Well, just uh, just as as you have, um, say, uh, Regency slang of uh, Rear Admiral of the Narrow Seas and <laughs> uh, and shooting the cat and all sorts of other things which are quite revolting, actually. I don't doubt that there is equivalent slang, but I see no particular reason to assume that. That language, among all of the other made-up language in the book, is actually based in fact. Well, it's it's kind of you know tangential to the plot anyway. So maybe <laughs> maybe we should talk about some well, other themes. Something else I'd briefly like to mention before. Yeah, we go ahead. Um, I have unaccountably missed out entirely from my description. My favourite character, 
who has a sadly very small part in the plot. Uh, but the there is a family of Jones children who are staying with Kay for the holidays because their parents were abroad and Kay's guardian took pity on them and didn't want them to be alone at Christmas. Where alone presumably means in the world of the books in a house populated entirely with children and servants. So there are still adults around. But anyway, one of the Jones children is Mariah, who could be known older than about 10. She's definitely younger than Kay. Uh, and is a wonderfully feisty sort of character who is described as often having a pistol about her person. Yeah, it's, and it's it's implied that those are actually loaded. I mean, that can't yes, be, right? Yes, it is implied that. And she is one of the people who are squabbled, but um, her siblings are not particularly concerned about this because they entirely trust that Mariah having pistols about her person is completely capable of taking care of herself. She is pretty awesome. She was awesome in the um, in the series as well. She was. She she was one of my favourite characters from from when I first read it. Yeah, I guess I, mean, I was she... about her sort of age when I first read it. So, so I think I mean thinking about sort of characters, she is the classic um, uh, feisty and slightly um, uh, overconfident but naive character mm. who will get caught up in things and then basically end up fighting her way out and causing more trouble for her antagonists than uh, than they thought <laughs> that, yes. than they thought was possible and um yeah well, she, she doesn't actually fire the pistols at anyone sadly. no she doesn't fire the pistols and and she really I mean, it would be much more interesting if she she ended up being the person who fought back uh, against the uh, against Arthur Brown and the um and his gang yes it's a great sadness to me that the one of the Jones children that Kay enlists as an accomplice is Peter who is pretty boring really Peter's it's just sort of yeah. Kay light yeah much better to have taken Mariah and her pistols yeah so, so let's set the stage we've got um, we've got Kay and Peter and Mariah and Jemima and Susan are the other two yeah and that, that Mariah is the only female name that I remember as well mm. Um, and uh, they're pretty much kids on their own. Uh, I mean, Except that's... that they have Ellen the servant. There is Ellen the servant thing, but I mean, this is the first... And Jim, also a servant. Okay, and Ellen and Jim. But this is the first thing I want to mention in the themes. Very early on in the plot, um, where they're supposed to have a guardian figure, uh, she is called away, and suddenly the children are pretty much on their own and they do have um now is Ellen the housekeeper or or is I think she's the maid rather than the housekeeper the I maid. she's quite as exalted as so, all that. So Ellen is responsible for them but she is also subordinate to yes. them. And this is the interesting thing is that suddenly they have no adults around to answer to and, and therefore they can um they can spend their day as they as they see fit. I mean, it's certainly the case that uh, Ellen is very concerned with them getting wet in the snow, and the um, and when she calls them in from making the snowmen, some of them acquiesce and then go in. And Kay and Peter just say, "Well, this is well, we'll go off somewhere else." Then they're completely disobedient yeah. and disregard any authority that Ellen should have, um, which is well. That in itself is a bit annoying. But the interesting thing is that the children are free agents and they have no they have no one telling them what to do. So they're pretty much free to act. 
Now, they do make appeals to authority, and this is this is an interesting thing about sort of this kind of uh, story where you have children or, or minors who uh, are investigating something, and when they make of appeals to authority, they're often uh, not believed. So they do, for example, go and speak to the police about the goings-on about people being scrobbled and the and the awful goings-on with, with Abner Brown and, and uh, the, the whole mystery and, and this, that and the other, and they're not believed. But yeah, it, I have a bit of a squick about that, about adults in fiction, in YA fiction particularly, telling the children to, don't be so silly, go away, you're worrying about nothing, uh, stop taking up my time. And I think that the Box of Delights might have been the source of it, because the police officer in the Box of Delights is so completely careless of Kay's concern when he is appealed to. Yeah, he's a, he's a useless tosser, really. <laughs> he really is. To his kick. Um, <laughs> or something. Uh, but but that in itself is an interesting feedback mechanism yeah. in that they started the scenario and you have characters who are essentially children, albeit sort of fairly um, self-confident and uh, feisty mature children. Mature and independent. Mature and independent, yes. And they uh, they are up for going off and having adventures and spending all day on their own, away from adults. And they realise that, you know, that, first of all, they have... They, they end up in this situation where they don't have any guardian overseeing them to uh, to tell them that where they should be at certain times of the day. So they are free. For example, Kay is free to get up in the middle of the night and bugger off out to the... Um, out to the... Is it the Mount? Arthur's Camp. Yeah, Arthur's Camp. And, uh, you know, any normal household, uh, he'd kind of be challenged and stopped. And it's probably he went past a servant on his way out, except we know he didn't. And but he's not challenged by anyone in the household about well, why is this twelve-year-old character suddenly going out in the dead of night in a snow in a blizzard, and um, and and so they are free to act and and choose where they go. Now this whole this whole mechanism of the um, of them adults not believing them kind of then is is almost it pushes the characters back into doing the investigation themselves and yeah. they can't rely on an adult to do the investigation on their behalf so they are forced to engage with the plot and i think it's an interesting narrative device except it's really annoying and just doesn't make any sense um certainly you wouldn't respect any of the adults who do do that kind of thing to a to a child but in terms of generating a story it kind of makes sense um, sort of the converse of that, one of the things I think is interesting is the ease with which other characters, both children and adults, accept the magic. Yeah. So uh, at various points, Kay uses the magic of the box to make other characters small or make them go swift, which are two key powers that the box has. And... Everybody takes that completely in their stride from the Jones kids, who he uses on to make them go small, uh, to hide from 
to hide from some of the bad guys. And then at the end, he uses the power of the box to make a whole heap of scrobbled clergymen and choir boys go swift in order to get to the um, Tadjister Cathedral in time for the midnight service, which has been performed every night for Christmas for a thousand years. And even the bishop, who you might expect to have some objections to this frankly pagan magic, takes this entirely in his stride. Yes, well, he is a bit dopey. <laughs> he is a bit dopey, but, but, that, but that's a function of the actor rather than anything else, I yeah. think. Yeah, that's true. I want to say something about magic and the interplay between Christianity and paganism mm. and also the um, the way that the, the, the whole mysticism is presented right from the outset. And to say, I'm, I'm actually slightly disappointed by it, in that right at the start we have this uh, this implied mythology of the Box of Delights and this sort of encountering Hearn the Hunter on the on one side and, and um, a character who's a stag and the old woman and, and various characters who look like there's some kind of secret society of pre-Christian mages or deities or whatever. They're very reminiscent of the old ones in the Darkest Rise of which yeah. I'm using at the moment. We, yeah, which is kind of really interesting. So so there's all of that and then there's this, this sort of um, very pregnant and uh, ominous, the wolves are running. All the wolves are running. This idea that the wolves are pursuing these characters and they're pursuing the box. And the fact that we know that one of the curate characters is actually a a fox, you know, is at some point, you know, Kay gets the distinct impression this character is not human. They are a fox in human form. So there's this, this heavy mythological element of these, uh, of, of animals that are human or animal or animals that have taken on human form and animals that are predators. And Paul Hollings refers to himself as being from pagan times. Exactly. And yet later on, um, Abner Brown is nothing more than a human magician. Very powerful, and there's lots of interesting imagery around that, but is a human magician. And Cole Hollings, even, is simply a magician philosopher who has learned the secret of longevity and also has the Box of Delights, which is a powerful artefact, but nevertheless... They are a magician who has this power to you know, use the box to go swift and go small and to enter other worlds, but they're just human. And I was expecting Cole Hallings to be more of a, a, a deity of some kind. And I felt that, that this is actually a shift of tone that goes from the first episode in the children's series that runs through it. It becomes more and more mundane and less about... Um, mythological themes and more about just um, human themes about two two different uh, warring magicians as it were oh I didn't get that change in tone at all and actually one of the things I think is most interesting about it is the way that the the magic and the mysticism coexists comfortably and companionably with the very strong thread of Christianity that runs through it this is a Christmas story, not just because it's set at Christmas. It's 
a Christmas story because it's rooted in and around the church and the doings of the church around Christmas. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that the the kind of the the climactic scene is all about getting the bishop and his staff to the cathedral to perform the Christmas service. I think that's very important. Yes, I suppose then that that Christian side is about human civilization, uh, post paganism, and, and it's about the rituals that they, the modern rituals that the human settlers have today, um, versus the the magical sensibilities that the the magical characters in in the in the book have otherwise well i don't think that i don't think that's a contra- i don't think that's a conflict between christianity and magic because we have magicians on both sides no i i i, I don't uh, no i agree with you i don't think it is what i'm really saying is that um originally i thought it was going to be one sort of story mm. and it turned out to be a slightly different sort of story hugely enjoyable but um the, this right at the start i had this sort of wondered who were cole hawkins was mm. and it turns out they are not as interesting as i thought they were going to be <laughs> they're not um they're not the same as hearn for example i thought that they would be some sort of all-father character or mm. or um godlike character and actually it turns out no they're a they're a natural philosopher where and they are in touch with pagan gods of types which is obviously via the box they can go into the other worlds and you know via the box they can go into both these um these parallel spirit worlds and also into the past see i think humans are way more interesting than gods Mm. so i didn't have that as a problem at all no I, i don't i don't think it's a problem but i think it is a shift in tone but maybe Maybe that's useful because you get a story like this and you, well, I assumed from the outset that this was this was about um, old time religion and pagan gods surviving in Christian times. And actually it turns out not to be about that. And paganism and Christianity, as you say, coexist quite uh, comfortably. I wonder if you read it when you were a bit older than when I first read it. Because I don't think I had very many expectations at all. In fact, I think this story formed a lot of my expectations for later things. I think I read it early enough and saw the TV show early enough Mm. that I hadn't read a lot of similar stuff and I hadn't yet started kind of putting together patterns in fiction to build expectations of things. Well, my my first experience of it was when I was about 12, when I saw it for the mm. first time, it was broadcast. Um, and I think I had the same feeling then. And it was, it. the interesting thing is it, it starts off with, it's kind of the difference between Sapphire and Steel and Doctor Who. <laughs> and in that Sapphire and Steel is about sort of the, these slightly weird situations where there are cosmic forces at work and you don't fully understand what everyone represents and then you get through to the doctor who which is yes there are godlike forces at work but actually you've got a pretty good handle about what everyone's doing about the um but about the protagonist and the the enemies of the doctor being uh mostly 
being measured by um, very human uh, human qualities, mm. um, and that's kind of where I felt the end of the 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 end of the story was versus the start. Mm. And again, I'm I'm going back to the TV series because we just watched it. Yeah. And specifically, I'm thinking about the very last episode, which that that bit as soon as Abner Brown stepped into his inner sanctum, I thought, "Oh, Doctor Who." Yeah, Spe- me too. Specifically, the design of the room is very Tardis. Yeah. Well, specifically, I was thinking of um, Tom Baker era Doctor Who. Mm. That kind of set design of that time, because of course it was the mid '80s, so it's completely contemporary with. Tom Baker or Doctor yeah. Who, despite having Patrick Troughton in it, of course. <laughs> so, role-playing bits. Have you got any ideas for games? Yeah, I think I kind of want to lift the plot wholesale um, and do something that's drawing a bit on Night Witches or Tales from the Loop with that kind of cycle between um, you're doing the exciting stuff and then you're doing the mundane stuff to either recover from what happened to you with the exciting stuff or to build up points to spend during the exciting stuff um, I think Night Witches and Tales from the Loop take kind of slightly opposite approaches to that but in both cases there are two different kinds of environment in which things happen yeah I mean by by that I mean, Night Witches you mean that in Night Witches we have the day-night cycle so during the day you go off and you do mundane things and have interactions with other people in which you push emotional buttons and by doing so you build up points which you need in order to survive the missions which you fly at night. And as I understand it, Tales from the Loop, which I don't know as well as I know Night Witches, kids go off and have adventures and then when it gets a bit too much they need to go home and have a cuddle from their mum or play with their dog or listen to their favourite music or something in order to effectively regain their hit points yeah right? well I've, I've got my copy of Tales from the Loop upstairs and I, we haven't played it um, and it's I think let's mention this it's beautifully laid out it's a fabulous <laughs> looking book really great um, it's uh, but they, they go into a lot of what Swedish kids did in the 80s for entertainment and I think it's sort of it's it's how they spend their free time and uh, decompress from the stresses of uh, of the world, I suppose. So, you know, watching VHS videos and uh, playing 80s video games and um, going around their friends' houses to play Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> well, what I want to do is uh, the Tales from the Loop hack for Box of Delights, where the, the plot bits are getting together and foiling some kind of evil, magical, gangster, scrabbling gang who've got some kind of uh, terrible plot that they're working on and then in scenes between that you have an ordinary upper middle class 1930s Christmas where you have a Punch and Judy show or you go and play with your boat on the river or you go to a party at the bishop's house or do your Christmas shopping or any of those kind of things, buttered eggs for tea, the, the normal sorts of things that happen in between the scenes of excitement. I like that alternating rhythm and I like the the contrast between the the high excitement, the going off and, and doing definite things and the 
quiet domesticity where you kind of recharge and get back the energy that you need in order to then go out and be heroic. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. I keep using this phrase liminal role-playing where you, <laughs> you, cross, yeah. you cross a boundary between high adventure and your domestic life. And I've long thought that the, the way that you express characters, I think, is having a domestic cycle probably is the best way to do that. So you have the adventure bit and you have the domestic bit and both of those are equally interesting to me. Um, I was thinking that, um, and I, I need to read this more, but um, Tom McGrenery's Melandros, yeah. which is, it ha- it's a drama system game, but it has the dramatic scenes and the procedural bits. And that, I think, is also could be used to good effect and that sort of thing yeah. maybe not exactly what you're talking about but but something similar yeah that sounds like a good idea i don't know melandros but i've played hill folk which is also a drama system my understanding is that um yeah from from reading it but not actually playing it is that it plays like drama system for the dramatic bits but the procedural bits are much better a bit like apocalypse world interesting but that's not as I understand it, it's not why Tom designed it that way. I think it, the the idea is that you generate points to feed back into the dramatic bits and or, or to encourage a sort of a back and forth between dramatic scenes and uh, exciting action mm-hmm. procedural scenes, which I, I think is is exactly you know, that that is a very noble goal. Assuming that that's what he intended. I'm sure if he listens to this and, and I've got it wrong, he'll set me wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the kind of stuff that we've been doing in role-playing all along, but I'm really enjoying the fairly recent emergence of system that actively encourages that cycle. And I think the Box of Delights really lends itself to it because, I mean, I was saying to you while we were watching the, the TV show the other day that I find it kind of weird and baffling that half of the Jones family have been squabbled and yet the remaining half are going out and, and playing with their boat on the river and they're living their watery lives and completely confident that Mariah will take care of herself. They, they are remarkably unconcerned about they everything. Are. And it, it's almost... With good cause, as it turns out. Well, yeah. It's a bit baffling at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's worth, that's worth mentioning is that um, during part of the scene where, where they've had, they have children under 10 go missing a guardian who also appears to be missing and has a there's a suspicious telegram that um, <laughs> yes i've got that scene kk receives a telegram this from, from his guardian that says oh i'm there was snow on the tracks and i had to turn back i've spent the night in london i'll come back tomorrow bye and he says oh normally my guardian says love and doesn't and so that's oh that's a bit suspicious but it's probably not important let's go and play with the snowman and, and uh, Kay actually knows that there's some weird shit going down and yet he still dismisses his blatant clue well that that's that's great and obviously not a role player but i can imagine role players hilariously ignoring that blatant clue yes, just who, to... who hasn't gm players who do that like I, i'm flashing a big clue sign at you and you're just not paying attention to it at all and you're going to go over there and do something else like hello there's a clue here role players going to do what role players do <laughs> yeah, yeah i've been that party as well as that gm of course but if you've got a structure of a game that that does that sort of uh, a dramatic scene and i guess this is kind of metagaming 
the if the players are aware that yes, we know there's an action scene coming up, but right now we have to play through the play through the dramatic bit to build enough enough points so that we can then play through the action That's scene. That's entirely how Lightwitches plays. Yeah, exactly. And they sort of, you know, let's not go out and do the bombing run right now. Let's, yeah. let's... Yeah. Hang on a minute. Let, we've got time for me to go and have another emotional conversation with somebody over there, right? Because, make... you know, we need some more mission call. And I'll make some borscht. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's completely how Lightwitches works. And and I think it... Uh, so I, I can... I can see that that it would work extremely well with uh, with this kind of thing. And yeah, but we can't go out and foil the evil radical bad gang yet because we've got to go and um, make some paper chains or whittle something or mm. I don't know what what do upper middle class kids do in the thirties. Well, if you want to know what upper middle class people did in the thirties. I think you should probably read Graham Walmsley's A Taste for Murder because it's got... Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's got... Um, and, of course, uh, British people who are interested in Agatha Christie-type fiction will be pretty familiar with the the conventions of that kind of murder mystery. But I believe that he wrote a chapter in it for the US audience that basically explains what England was like in the upper middle <laughs> class in the 1930s. And... It kind of sounds like that, and it, it is all, yes, things are going to be fine, and, um, well, somebody else is taking care of that, and these are the concerns we have, and, and the, you know, this is what's important, our little microcosm within yeah. our uh, within, within our upper-middle-class estate where we, where we go around and play, and we know the Jones is next door, and otherwise the rest of the world isn't particularly important. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm going to do a... Um... Night Witch's Tales in the Loop, Taste of Murder, as it turns out, match up. And that would be my box of delights game. What uh, about you? Having said that, I was a bit disappointed about initially expecting it to be sort of having much more mythic resonance than it turns out to be about Warring Magicians. I do still really dig Warring Magicians. <laughs> I like the. Um, it seems to me that's a different book. Well, mm, that's. Okay, so Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is a different book. But at the same time, this is about essentially warring magicians, or at least one magician fleeing another. Yeah. Um, and I do like those themes. Um, and one of the things I liked was the um, Ram and Lily uh, being uh, obviously very long-lived, and the implication that you know you can go back in time with the Box of Delights and the idea that you have magicians from later ages sort of sitting in little pockets in earlier times. Mm. It was kind of interesting. So it's interesting that you talk about um, having magicians from different eras sort of scattered throughout bits of the past because there's a Joe Walton trilogy, actually, um, of which the first one is called... Oh, God, I can't remember... One of them's called The Philosopher Kings, but I think that's the second. Um, the Just City, that's what the first one's called. Which features um, characters who have been plucked from many different eras and put together on an island um, off the shores of Greece, I think somewhere hundreds of years ago, to uh, try and create Plato's Just City, which he wrote about. So in a similar sort of 
what you were just saying about magicians scattered through history reminded me of that, that in that book, people of various kinds, some of them people we've heard of, um, famous philosophers or artists or whatever, have been pulled out of history and dropped into this, into this perfect city. Intended perfect city, obviously. It's not actually perfect, otherwise there wouldn't be three novels in it. Cool. The thing that I think is perhaps most interesting, but maybe this overlaps a bit with another book we're probably going to talk about in the near future, <laughs> is the fixing of the plot over a set period of time at Christmas. Mm. And obviously we know that the conclusion of the Box of Delights happens on Christmas Eve at midnight. But the idea that, that you've got a a build-up to an immovable date, I think is kind of interesting. Mm. So if I were going to pick something to run a game about, it's basically to say that to telegraph some event in the future, to say that you're moving towards a um, a momentous event uh, or a cataclysmic event or something, and it's in the near future, and then to time phase the game. And as you suggested, splitting it into day and night sections, maybe staging scenes based on what happens during the day and what happens during the night. And if it's set over Christmas, then obviously you you want to involve some of the uh, the Christmas celebrations that are going on around. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about this is it's obviously a, a rural setting. Yeah. So rather than a city where generally things are warmer, there are a lot of people around and characters could go in any direction and find people to interact with. Here you're talking about a, a rural setting where you have a sparse population and small communities where everybody knows each other. And also you have a landscape where you have um, historical significance in certain areas. Yeah. So building that into a closed environment, a sort of sandbox where you set a, uh, you, you, you give the players, this is your map, this is where everybody lives, this is where the village is, these are the different estates, uh, small numbers of groups of people, and then here are the sites of interest, here's Arthur's camp, here's the, uh, here's the dark wood, here's the river that runs through, and then, then you can have them uh, explore over a period of time, but you... you early on in the game that you make it clear to them that they're on a they're on the clock is ticking and they're moving towards some kind of uh some kind of climax and what they do will determine whether that is uh whether they win or they lose essentially and then seeding in the sort of the mundane things like that, particularly the making use of the festivities where everybody is gathered uh, for particular reasons. Loosely formed idea, but I mm. think I, I could fancy running a game like that. Yeah, um, I think that careful timing thing definitely has potential. And maybe running a game like Drama System where you take note of the various relationships different characters have and... Uh, they're free to go and have dramatic scenes with whoever they choose to have or in, in any location they choose to have, building the story that way, but at the same time advancing the clock. 
other game systems, maybe Monster Hearts or something similar. Wow. Now, this, okay, that would be a bit strange. This is 1930s Monster Hearts where you actually... But these characters are all kind of, or at least the, the bad guys are all monstrous in their own way could be an interesting thing mashing up uh, Agatha Christie with Monster Hearts for example <laughs> in a rural setting at Christmas <laughs> yeah alright well you're not very convinced but I think no it's I'm a... not very convinced but I kind of want to try it just as a challenge my idea is only half formed but that's about it any last words about Box of Lights just that I'm enjoying this one we seem to be having a um, talking about formative books of my childhood it's about three in a row now I think we should go on and do the rest as well yeah I'll be up for that <laughs> well the next one I think is is should be no surprise but is that a formative book of your childhood no I read so should we name the book we're talking about yeah go ahead so we're talking about The Darkest Rising by Susan Cooper and the reason we're talking about The Darkest Rising is is that there's a massive worldwide reread of it going on mostly on Twitter at the moment which we are both participating in uh, but no that's not a formative book of my childhood I only read that as an adult and only about four years ago mm. I didn't read anything by Susan Cooper as a kid um, I wish I had and having read it as an adult it slots neatly into the same box in my head as Box of Delights mm. in lots and lots of ways um, it's also a, a YA well YA before YA a kid's book that's right. About set in what is history for us, although they're about 40 years apart, I think. I think um, The Dark is Rising is set in about the 70s. Yes, that's about right. Um, about when it was written again. But over Christmas, there is a lot of snow, there's magic, there's a child who has great power and has to use it to fight back darkness. Um, there's a medium to large cast of other child characters scattered about the place. They have a lot in common, I think. Have a closed-off rural environment where the char- where the child characters can essentially roam free, and and we have some blurring of geographical and historical lines where um, familiar bits of that environment are rendered unfamiliar by going into the past of them. Yeah. Well, I think we'll probably talk about that next episode. We may well do so. All right. So. That's been our episode on The Box of Nights by John Minnesfield. And have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye. That's all for now, listeners. I hope you have a terrific Christmas. We'll see you on the other side with part two of the episode where we cover Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising. Until then, jingle bells.